All right. Welcome back to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And today we're joined by my longtime friend, Trey Lohman. Trey, how are you doing today? Doing well. How are you guys doing? Doing very well. It's been a while since we talked to you. In fact, last time we talked to you, I think you and I have, have certainly texted, but last time we at least saw you in person, now we're seeing you over, you know, Google Meet. Last time it was around Christmas. It was the day after. It they, was the second day of yeah. Christmas. And uh, you had come over for dinner, which was great. And then we were going to the movie theater to see Star Wars. And lo and behold, we got to the movie theater and then Sally called me and we had a plumbing catastrophe in our kitchen. So we had to turn around. <laughs> I had to go back and deal with that. It was so sad. And you, uh, you went away sad that you could not see Star Wars with me, no doubt. Right, So right. Now that was a pretty <laughs> epic night. <laughs> but uh, hopefully we'll be able to see the movie again soon. Maybe something like Tenet when theaters are consistently reopened and it's uh, you know, safe to resume movie attendance and all of that. So looking forward to that. Right. But today, Trey, I wanted to have you on to talk about some of these things that we've been talking about both on the show, but even more importantly, across the nation, lots of discussions going on about racial justice. Uh, Trey, for my listeners, Trey is a, an Air Force officer. Uh, he and I went to the Air Force Academy together, so we've known each other for a long time. Uh, in fact, Trey's, uh, Trey's one of the long distance friends who my kids know not just because we've seen him here and there, but they actually recognize you from our wedding album because <laughs> yeah. there's, you know, there's a few people from our Academy times, Trey, who are in our wedding album. And so ever since my kids have been really young, they've like looked through that wedding album. They love seeing pictures of mommy and daddy. And then they will ask me like, who's this, who's this? And so I go, go down the groomsmen uh, and tell them who, who uh, each of them are. So they recognize you. And when you came over at Christmas, they, they definitely knew who Trey was. So that was kind of fun. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we've known each other for a long time, Trey. You are uh, an African-American man and you grew up in Colorado here in uh, probably like uh, upper middle class family. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's, that's, that's accurate. And, uh, and so you have had, a, I think, a lot of unique experiences. Um, you also, I mean, Colorado Springs is not a super racially diverse town. Uh, right. You grew up in a largely white neighborhood, like I said, in an upper middle class family. And so in, in some ways, I think it's fair to say, correct me if any of this is wrong, but I think it's fair to say you kind of had a, a, a foot in two worlds, right? So growing up in a largely white city, upper middle class community uh, as a black man, I think that's, it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. And I wanted to hear you talk about that specifically sure. because you sent me this article called, um, what was the name of it? It's by Ramesh Nagaraja. And the title yep. is Reflections from a Token Black Friend. And you said this to me when I was first kind of talking about some of this stuff and was asking you for resources about it. And you said, this is something that, that I thought was really well-written and well done. And, uh, I resonated with a lot of it. Um, the thesis of the article, and this is in the show notes. If you want to pause the episode and go to the show notes, find the article, maybe read through it or skim it and then come back to this. It might be more helpful, but the, the thesis of the article by Ramesh, who, by the way, is, is um, like you and I, Trey, a service academy grad, went to the Naval Academy. Uh, I'm not sure right. if he's still in the Navy, but at least at one point was. Right. Um, he was talking about what it was like to grow up as a black man in a white community, going to mostly white schools in a, in a relatively affluent part of Massachusetts in a Boston suburb, and how um, he was like the, quote, token black friend, as he says, you know, the only black boy in a, in a group of white boys. Um, and, uh, and what that was like and how a lot of his friends were insensitive to that fact, how his friends would say something like, you're the whitest person, the whitest black kid I know, um, unintentionally, but, you know, very clearly, like 
saying how well he aligns or does not align with their idea of what a black person should be, et cetera. And right. so, and he talks about a lot of these, um, these ideas that I think were really interesting for me because I was thinking about it as you had recommended to me, I was thinking about like how, how well this might align with your experience. And I was, I was further thinking like, how did I, or did I not do the same thing that these guys did to Ramesh to you at the Academy? And I, I mean, we, I don't think we need to go into detail with those, but like looking back, there are definitely times that I did Trey. I, there are definitely times where I, I said things like that to you or probably made you feel like uh, an outsider or someone who didn't totally belong or certainly like, you know, brought attention to our differences and stuff like that. And I know you're a nice guy, so you're probably not going to like totally agree with me on that. But I know I know that I did that. And so, um, first of all, I'm sorry. But second, second, uh, since you shared this article with me, you know, I've been talking for a long time here. Tell me about how well this article aligns with your experiences being in a very similar situation as Rabesh. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> so like you, like you kind of laid out there. Um, yeah, I grew up in a pretty well-to-do family. You know, I was like the one, one of the few uh, families of color in my neighborhood growing up. Uh, my middle and high school, I was typically one of the few, you know, black dudes in the class. Um, so the, the article actually kind of struck, you know, some pretty interesting chords with me. Um, some of the things, you know, I encourage readers to give the article a read, but, you know, some, some of the experiences that he kind of laid out for us, um, <laughs> I could at least point personal parallels to. Um, probably the most, uh, not, not that, you know, these are all too common either, but probably the most, um, you know, out there in your face kind of thing that was dropped on me as a kid, you know, is, you know, I'm just Trey, do my, do my Trey business and, uh, you know, hanging out with people who are a different race from me. And they say, Oh, Trey, you act so white or, or mm. you are the whitest black person. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> that was kind of a, not all too common um, interaction growing up, but you know, it was, it definitely happened. And for me at the time, you know, um, being the adolescent that I was, I didn't really know kind of a, the right way to, to address that. You know, I would just kind of internalize, you know, my feelings about those kinds of interactions. Um, but now as a young adult, you know, looking back, um, I can definitely say, yeah, I think people um, oftentimes, you know, they have these implicit biases that they allow um, to kind of steer their interactions with people who might look different than them. Um, I don't know, you know, again, I don't think that's necessarily coming from a place of, you know, malice or whatnot. It's more often than not, you know, just them not knowing, you know, the ignorance, sure. Um, but I think as we, as a society kind of push towards, you know, this inclusion and um, kind of dynamic, I think it's important to take a second and actually, you know, address any sort of implicit biases that we might have against others. So back to the article though. Um, yeah, I encourage folks to give it a read. Um, <laughs> growing up as the, you know, the one black dude in, the, in all my classes was uh, definitely an experience. Um, by and large, a good experience, of course, right? But then you have these interactions that kind of, you know, in retrospect kind of stand out. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's, um, if you don't mind, let's like stay on that idea that, you know, that comma that you heard all the time that you're the whitest black kid I know. Like, what is that? Uh, I mean, I, I think I have a good idea of why it's problematic, right? But to right. you, why do you think that's problematic? Yeah, so I think a lot of it boils down to, you know, what people expect um, others to act like or, or how they speak, right, based off of, you know, their outward appearance, which 
is faulty. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not how you want to, you know, approach others. Um, so I think it's a problem because, you know, I mean, I, like I said before, I was just a young Trey growing up, just trying to, you know, do well in class and be a good son and good friend. And to hear people say, oh, you act so white. Like I, at the time, I didn't really, really know what that means, what that meant. Um, it probably makes you second guess yourself too and second guess yeah, your in a way. interactions so, with people. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I kind of, my dad, you know, one of my heroes personally, um, great guy. Um, he put it to me pretty, pretty presciently, you know, back, back in the day, he said, Trey, you know, there are, you know, what oddly, you know, 40 million black people in America. Right. Um, so there are 40 million ways to be quote unquote black, right. There is no, you know, you're an individual. Um, sure. There's, a kind of black identity that you can identify with, right? But there isn't, you know, a certain set of or how how you should speak or the kinds of outcomes in life you should expect just because you're black. And that kind of stuck with me, um, you know, as I was growing up. That's such a good point. Yeah, I would actually love to hear yes. your dad's experience. I mean, you're a, I didn't mention you're a second generation Air Force Academy grad. So your dad went um, not, I mean, certainly not like the first class that was that was desegregated, but I mean, it was in like the first, the first two decades, right. Of black yeah, men no, being able was, to attend the academy. Uh, so he, I'm sure he has some really interesting experiences too. Yeah. He was an 86 grad. So I think that was a little bit after they started, you know, opening up the class to a more diverse, um, undergraduate pool. But yeah, no, I, I think I can definitely say, um, my experiences at the academy are probably, <laughs> I mean, again, in, in the vein of progress, right. Um, quote unquote, better than his were, right? In at least this regard. Um, but um, yeah, I actually should give my dad a call and <laughs> pick his brain some more on what he was thinking, you know, about his time back, back growing up black back then. Yeah, you should ask him if he wants to come on Renekther podcast. Yeah, that would be us. amazing. <laughs> I yeah. think he'd actually be very, uh, very willing to speak with you guys. Oh, oh, that would be, that'd be yeah. awesome. Well, well, we I, should definitely I, do that. Yeah, I'm offering it seriously. So yeah. ask him if yeah. he would. Maybe you, you guys okay. can come on together. We could do a, <laughs> maybe next time you're in town, you know, that'd be fun. That'd be cool too, um, for sure. So going back to this, like this whitest black person I know. I So when I mentioned that I had said some things to you during our time at the Academy, um, without malice, certainly, but just like out of ignorance or insensitivity, I'm pretty sure that was one of them. You might be able to remember more than I, but like speaking from my own vantage point, when I would say that I would, I would see like, you know, you're listening to... I don't know, like young, the giant in this like very, this very like hipster music that's made right. by and large right. by white artists. And I don't know, I mean, you're, you're, you were in, you were certainly like much more up on the hipster music scene than I ever was. You know, I would go to you for music recommendations and things like that. For sure. And uh, yeah, I think like, that's what I meant by it, but it's problematic for all the reasons that you outlined. And I think it's, it's insensitive on two levels or like with two different meanings. One is that like, you're not conforming to um, or like you're conforming more to my lifestyle than I would expect you to as a black right. man, right? Like I have more in common with you, Trey, than I would think I would because you're the whitest black person I know or whatever. And then on the second level, it also, I imagine makes you, makes you wonder like, or question, like, are you sort of betraying your race in a way, right? Like it, I mean, right. if being black is part of your identity and correct me if any of this is, is mistaken, if, if being black is part of your identity and then someone tells you like, you're not black at all. I mean, that, that probably doesn't make you feel very good. Right. It doesn't. And I think it kind of goes to a bigger issue. You know, I kind of brought it up earlier that, you know, there isn't a, there isn't one way to be, you know, a certain, you know, to act a certain way just because you're a certain race. Right. 
Um, uh, to you know, kind of harkening back to the article, there was a line in there um, where, of course, he was you know called the whitest black kid that you know his friend group knew. Right. Um, but he, he points out, you know, there's a sort of inherent superiority of whiteness yeah. um, that should make him feel like honored to be counted amongst their ranks. I mean, that's kind yeah. of that's really the issue here, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like it's a compliment. Right. You're so white. Right. That's a compliment. Right. That's right. the suggestion. And I think that's I think that's kind of the the heart of the issue. <laughs> right. No, so. I think it's but I think it's either, right? It's either a compliment like, wow, you're you're more like us, or it's an insult because you're like, you're not like your people, right? Yeah, like you don't fit in in either category. Yeah. Yeah. No, growing up as a token, I mean, I definitely <laughs> get pushed back from kind of both communities, right? So my several black friends, you know, they would say, Trey, you don't act like us. You know, mm. you act so white. Why do you like you know, young, the giant, why do you like, mm. you know, these sorts of things. Um, and then, you know, on this, on the same side though, you have pushback from the white friends that say, <laughs> you don't act like these, these black people that have this kind of, you know, preconceived, you know, notions for how they should act. Like, right. what are you doing? Right. dude? So in a way there's kind of, again, not trying to say that growing up as a, you know, black person, I was lonely by any means, but you kind of get this kind of like, Oh wait, are you one of us kind of, um, notion from kind of both crowds, right? Yeah, totally agree. So one of the reasons that Ramesh wrote this article was just to basically to talk to his white friends, right? Like this is from your token black friend. Here are my thoughts on this. Here's where I think we can improve. Here's what I wish you knew, et cetera. So if, if you had the opportunity, Trey, to like, you know, tell all of your friends something about your experience, what is it that you'd like them to know? I mean, I think we probably already covered a lot of it, but Right. You know, right. anything else, just like Ramesh, you know, typed this, this wonderful long essay. Yeah. What else, what else would you like your friends to know? So I think, you know, kind of, I guess, at, towards the conclusion of his article, at least he, he encouraged us, he encouraged everyone, you know, he kind of said, you know, it's not our job to really heal the world. Um, but I think, and I agree with him on this point. Um, if we start by kind of questioning these sorts of small interactions and beliefs that we have every day, I think that'll do a lot towards um, moving towards a society where we don't necessarily, you know, <laughs> act on implicit biases and, you know, kind of categorize people based off how they look for, you know, how they, how they should behave in, in society at large. Um, so yeah, my word of advice to, I guess, all my friends. Yeah, no, don't, we hear growing up too, you know, don't just, uh, assume, you know, people are supposed to be a certain way, um, and really just get to know them. Right. And, uh, I think if, I think in general, we have a lot more in common than we give ourselves credit for. And I think eventually we'll be able to move to a point where we just see people as people. Right. Um, while also recognizing, you know, the sorts of things that stand out and make us individual. Sure. But, um, yeah, I think moving towards a place where we can just see people as people would be, I think, um, kind of the long-term goal. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and I appreciate that input, like the, the focus on interpersonal relationships. It's not like race relations per se. It's interpersonal relations and, and people, by, by definition, have a, a, you know, an ancestral lineage of some sort. Their, their right. DNA encodes the genetics of one or, in most cases, many races. And I think that needs to be a starting point. But something I've been thinking about, one of the things that Ramesh says in this article is you can either be an enemy or an ally. And I think that's, I think that's right, first of all. 
But I think that's also, you know, one way of portraying the way this conversation nationally has gone, right? That you can either be racist or anti-racist. There's not really an in-between because to be a non-racist is to like not have a, not have a bone in the fight to just say like, I'm detached from the conversation Right. to be anti-racist. Like, yeah, go ahead. You know, I was gonna say folks, you know, to kind of pull that thread, you know, the, the folks that say, I don't see color, you know, might be, you know, might fall into that kind of category. Yeah. That's so I'm so glad you said that. Cause that's where my question was going. Right. So we have, we have, you know, on the one hand, racist in the middle, perhaps non-racist, which maybe like you said, is I don't see color. And then on the other hand is anti-racist. Right. And I think we should all be anti-racist, at least in the sense that we all need to call out racism where we see it. And we all need to actively stand against racism, not just say like passively, well, I don't practice racism. Right. But you know, right. I'm not going to infringe okay, on if you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So right, that's, that's right. an absolutely unacceptable stance. So we all definitely need to be anti-racist in that sense. But in reading the literature, I'm looking, you know, on my desk here, I've got a few books that I'm, and I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm early in the literature and I'm trying to learn more, but I have White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo, which is probably the most recommended book today for understanding this issue. Um, right. I personally, you know, approach this with a grain of salt because it's written by a white person, <laughs> but, but that's one of the most highly recommended. Um, uh, uh, Ibram Kendi's um, uh, Stamped from the Beginning uh, is another one on my desk here. And then I have Thomas Chatterton Williams, Self-Portrait in Black and White. I'm not sure how much you know about Chatterton Williams. I'm just just starting to engage with his thought, but he is um, he himself is uh, biracial, uh, and then he married a white woman, and so his daughter is obviously biracial as well, but um, looks very very white, and so that has kind of challenged his conceptions about what it means to be what it means to be a black person. Um, he opens his book talking about that and how like his world kind of changed when his daughter was born. He he looked into the eyes of a blonde haired, blue eyed little girl. And was like, I'm a black man and this is my daughter. And this is really um, kind of a strange thing. And then he talks about how in, um, I think he contrasted this with Brazil, right? In America, generally our conception is if you have just a little bit of African-American blood, you're a, you're a black person. In Brazil, he said, he said, that's not a universal idea because for example, in Brazil, I think it was real. I think it was Brazil. He said, if you have like one drop of white blood, then you're considered a white person. Um, and so like the, the ideas are flipped there, but Chatterton Williams seems to seems to think that we actually should be maybe moving towards a kind of like post race world or a colorblind world. And I wanted to get your opinion on that, right? Like, is the is the answer to this problem to focus more on race or to focus less on race? And I think the general dialogue today seems to be to say that we need to move away from colorblindness because to to be colorblind is to ignore the unique experiences of each race. And in particular, minority races as they um as they have lived experiences etc but i want to know your impression of that what do you think like right. should the focus be more or less on race because when you were talking about the interpersonal thing it also made me think like not take race out of the equation necessarily but but don't make it like a monolithic thing that just is the sole determinant of someone's behavior and attitudes and ideas etc right i think i'm moving towards that post-racial world right that's for sure end goal but i think before we can even get to that point though we need to take a moment, you know, and, and actually address the persistent issues that continue to exist, right, which tend to be race-based. So to your question, I think the immediate focus perhaps should be focusing, you know, on racial disparities and justices right now in the hopes that down the road um, that we can be, you know, focused less on race. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. Um, so. We're having a big conversation right now nationally, Trey. Um, are you optimistic that we'll see real change come out of this? I, I think I was initially, 
And now I'm honestly not so sure, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I'm always the optimist, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I would like to think so. I mean, you even see it most recently. I mean, I think it was literally yesterday, Mississippi voted to remove or to address their you know, state flag, right? That's kind of an extension of this kind of racial conversation in America right now. Right? Yeah, just real quick. I don't, I don't understand why the stars and bars have been in that flag for so long. Like I, I haven't well, seen anybody <laughs> give a good defense of that at all. Yeah. Read up on um, kind of the lost cause, um, I guess, era post civil war in the American South. And that kind of sheds a lot of light okay. on, you know, kind of um, institutionalizing white supremacy, you know, in society in the South post civil war. <laughs> um, that can maybe shed some light on that. But I'm not, I'm not familiar, at least not too familiar, but the lost cause, that's the idea that the Confederacy was like a noble valiant effort. And it was just a, a lost battle by noble Southerners. Right. Right. They, they, it was a romanticization of, you know, treason to America. Right. Okay. Um, that kind of tried to legitimate to in a post slavery world, uh, in America in a post slavery America, that still try to legitimize the white superiority in society. So it was a way was, of, it was a way of still ascribing some sort of like nobility or some sort of honor to the ideas of the Confederacy, even though right. it had been a lost cause in the war. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. Problematic. Um, and so, the, so then that, that leads to like the, the vestiges of the Confederacy still remain like the stars and bars and the flags, for oh, example. For sure. Yeah. yeah all okay. over the place. Makes sense. Um, but that's kind of tangentially related to our conversation. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right I derailed you. <laughs> <laughs> Just, <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, no, I, to your question though, are we making progress? I mean, I would say, yes, I think we are making progress. I mean, so in addition to the Mississippi, you know, thing that just came out, um, Colorado just recently passed legislation too, you know, for, for police reform, right. For how the Colorado police forces, um, are expected to interact with society and the standards that they're being held to, I guess, are being heightened right so that's i think good news because a lot of these all these things are kind of all related back to the kind of the racial conversation in america right now right um but yes i think we will make progress i think we are making progress um it'll be interesting to see how uh, the rate at which we make progress heading into you know uh, another four-year election situation coming up um, but, uh, I, I would encourage people to not get complacent and think, you know, oh, we've made, you know, these sorts of advances, you know, this is good enough. Like don't relent on demanding change for, um, you know, all these, you know, these injustices that are, I guess, more or less coming to light now for folks at large because they've <laughs> for the past couple of months been staying at home, right. <laughs> With everything going on. Uh, before we wrap up, I just thought kind of as a concluding note, we go back to the question of the enemy versus ally point that Ramesh made. And right. just like practically speaking, what do you think it means for white people to be allies to the friends that they have? And I mean, what do you think that would look like? Because he gave examples of his white friends being just oblivious to instances of racism and just be or to being completely shocked when they saw it. And he felt kind of, I think, disrespected by just even their shock that they had absolutely no idea that racism still continued to exist after desegregation. Or yeah, or just like unseen maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But what do you think, what do right. you think like if we were to like leave our listeners with something practical, like how could they yeah. come alongside their black friends and be allies in this time? Yeah. What does being an ally look like? Right. 
Um, I think first and foremost is recognizing that, you know, there are issues, right? That there are racial undertones, you know, that still pervade society at large. So recognizing that fact, um, I think is a good starting point. Um, next, I would say, you know, when you see something, <laughs> this is kind of an Air Forceism, right? But when you see something, say something. Um, if, some, if, if something goes on that's racially motivated and you're the bystander, don't just let it happen, right? Call it out. I think the more we call attention to even, you know, passive acts of quote unquote injustice, I think would be a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, but also I think the biggest thing too is, you know, just exercising empathy is challenging, right? Because again, there are differences in people, but I think being able to listen and to your black friends and internalize the concerns they bring up and, you know, enter the conversation from a point, from a place of humility, I think would be, um, again, another step in the right direction as far as being a, a good ally, right. To your black friends. Yeah. I love that. That's so well said. Um, I'm reading this book right now called the mothers, um, by, I think her name is Britt Bennett and like the whole cast of characters, I think pretty much everyone is black and, but she, the author just does this great job of making you come face to face with your own assumptions about each character as she moves right. inside the head of each character. And it, it would just, I was reminded of that book as you were talking about um, how there's 40,000 ways to be a black person because each character you think that you kind of understand where they're coming from and then you go inside their head and you realize, no, I don't understand where they're coming from at all. And, yeah. and there's nothing about the way that they're interacting at the present time that um, th or that there's nothing about their experience that it was revealed in the way that they're interacting, but that doesn't mean that I can make these assumptions about them, that they're X kind of person or Y kind of person, or this is a bad person or this is a good person. Um, right. So yeah, I think that's, th those are great, great words to end on. Yeah. Um, I might also piggyback onto that comment too, Sally. Um, you know, as far as being an ally, right. One final thought. Um, so another article uh, came out, actually, um, another Yusafa grad, Nate Dial, who was a 2010er. Um, oh, yeah, I know recently, He recently published in Air Force Times, I think it was yesterday, um, title of the article, I can link it to you. It's, I am confused, scared, and afraid. And that kind of gives, you know, kind of his two cents on, on um, what to do, you know, how to be a good ally. And he, he leaves us with three things, um, you know, give, seek, ask. Um, give, give the person the benefit of the doubt. Um, give the person of color the benefit of the doubt, right? Um, seek out people of color in your, you know, in your life um, and share your journey with them. Um, and then ask, um, ask your other white colleagues or whatnot, or people in your life, how they feel about things going on is kind of, you know, at least a way to have that conversation. Again, give, seek, ask with kind of his three um, takeaways from that article. Good article. I would recommend uh, checking it out. Yeah, I definitely will. And in fact, um, I'll find that and I'll link it in the show notes here as well. But one final thing that um, I would add, just based on what you said about giving the benefit of the doubt, Trey, I think that's super important. And one thing I'm afraid of with all of this, like all of this conversation, all this dialogue about racial justice, super helpful, super good, or at least it can be if we kind of direct the energy appropriately. But I'm afraid right. of people um, and I, I mostly mean white people here having a like visceral reaction to it and saying like, I'm not racist. How dare you lump me into that thing and being afraid simultaneously of 
you know, of them like stepping out too far, right? If you say the wrong thing, if you do the wrong thing, um, even if it's just a, you know, so-called microaggression, then that's it. You're done. I think that, um, what, 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 what we really need here is forgiveness on both sides. And you and I were talking about this very briefly on the phone yesterday when we were talking about this, this discussion here, but I think something you said then, right? Like we need to forgive to move forward and, and that's really necessary. And as much as, um, as much as, you know, white people have done poorly. Um, and I'm not talking even about slavery and Jim Crow and all of that. I'm talking about like even now when we fail to understand the experiences of our black brothers and sisters. Um, I think it's equally helpful for, well, it's, it's very helpful for white, for white people to recognize that and to seek forgiveness and then to not be afraid to ask, like, how can I do better, right? To Yeah, to be right. vulnerable and to be willing to take risks in, in, the, in the relationship. Yeah, I mean. And I think that's, that's both ways, too. You know, it's not just the burden isn't on white people and the burden isn't just on, white, on black people either. You know, I think it's a concerted effort together, you know, to move forward. Yeah, and I think, I mean, as, a, as an Air Force guy, like, I was, you know, active duty for so long. You've sat through a ton of these suicide trainings, right? And one of the first things that people are told to do to prevent suicide is to not be afraid to ask the question like right. are you considering harming yourself etc and i think in in a similar way like we need to not be afraid of asking those questions along racial lines as well not about suicide but just like right. um like what is your experience as a black person yeah how are you experiencing racism in your life now or and even like you know i make an offhand comment that maybe could be interpreted or misconstrued and i say to my black friend did I offend you? I'm, I'm very sorry if I did. Totally not my intention. This is what I meant to say or, or whatever. You know what I mean? I think we need to be a lot more comfortable with having those conversations rather than letting race be the elephant in the room and, and just like being totally like walking on eggshells around each other, afraid that will that will offend. You know, I think the reality is we're human beings and we will offend even in a totally, uh, you know, if race was not a thing, we would still find ways to offend each other. Right. We do. I mean, we offend right. each other on issues of like religion and, uh, you know, sex and just other parts of the, of our, you know, politics for sure. Like all of these things, like offending people is a fact of life because people are complicated, messy, uh, sinful creatures. And so we're going to, we're going right. to keep sinning against one another, but we need grace and we need forgiveness to, to, to reconcile us. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, yeah, you put it nicely, you know, don't be afraid to call out the elephant in the room, you know, <laughs> talking about race is tough, right? But we won't get to a better place unless we do. Yeah. And those conversations tend to be uncomfortable. <laughs> but. Well, hopefully this conversation wasn't too, too uncomfortable for you, Trey. <laughs> oh, no, Zach, Sally, this has been a great conversation. Uh, no, we love talking to you. Um, yeah, this in, is great. In fact, I'm wondering why we didn't do it sooner. Uh, you're, you've been a great podcast guest, so I appreciate the time. Um, of course. talk to your dad, see if he'd come on, yes. we, can, we can, we can have you guys both over, uh, when you're in town here and we'll, we'll all sit around the, uh, in the recording studio here and, and have a conversation. It'd be fun. Yeah. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Trey, thanks so much. Um, if listeners want to get in touch with Trey, uh, just have questions about his perspective on things. I'd be happy to put you in touch to so just send, uh, Sally and I a note, Zach and Sally, Z-A-C and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And we'll link both those articles that we mentioned. Um, the first one by Ramesh, Reflections from a Token Black Friend, and the second one from Nate Dial. Um, I don't know if it's called Give, Ask, Seek, or Give, Seek, Ask, but um, it, that's the theme, and we'll put it in the show notes, and, and you can read it there and all that. So with that, if you want to get in touch with Trey, send me an email, Zach and Sally at VernacularPodcast.com. Trey, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great night. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. You know 
Vampires 